There's a really interesting area of ag investing that admittedly I didn't know too much about. It's not quite like early stage venture capital and not quite like private equity either. It's called growth equity, and Jim Taylor has been deploying growth capital in food and ag companies for over 20 years. We like technologies that are kind of cool that we can understand, but we also just like plain old good businesses that need capital to grow. And, you know, really they're about superior execution, uh, not so much being the only mousetrap of its kind. Jim is the founder and managing director of Forge Capital Partners. And today he shares the past, present, and future of where he sees proven companies and business models that need this growth capital and expertise. I really believe the opportunities that are gonna show up are, are really around how do we deal with some of the, the environmental constraints around agriculture that are real. I do think there needs to be more attention paid to variable rate. And I think there's a huge opportunity on the production side, both on the equipment and food production and fertilizer production to bring a lot of that stuff back to North America. Jim Taylor shares lessons from two decades of investing in ag companies on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. I'm very pleased that this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Swap Maps. Because when you know more, you grow more. Swap Maps Variable Rate Technology helps you understand the why of field variability and how to better manage it. Understanding soils is the core of a successful fertility program, and Swap Maps allows you to map, measure, and better manage your soils using data that accurately delineates areas with similar fertilizer response characteristics. Turn your data into actionable value with Swap Maps. They're your trusted variable rate provider on millions of acres currently with a 98% retention rate. Swap Maps, they do variable rate right. Learn more at swapmaps.com. Uh, book a consultation or just check out more information. That's swapmaps.com. But you don't have to take just my word for it. Listen to Tyler Kessler talk about how Swap Maps opened his eyes to the potential of variable rate and how it's worked for him as both a farmer and agronomy consultant working in southern Saskatchewan. I started being introduced into Swap Maps, and that really was the kind of the turning point of, of where I believed it started to make sense for me. I could see it, it started making sense for the clients. And it just, it was the base layer of if you're actually dealing with physical properties, you're not dealing with just yield maps, you're not dealing with imagery to try and, you know, market a scalable business. In our case, we've got 99% retention. Anyone that has, that has tried it continues to increase their acres and, and they, they want more. You can hear more from Tyler if you'd like on our most recent field report segment. So go check that out if you haven't done so already. And of course, visit swapmaps.com to learn more. All right, now back to our featured conversation today with Jim Taylor of Forge Capital Partners. Jim has been involved with financing growth companies for over 20 years now and has created and managed seven different funds prior to Forage. He was a founder of three growth equity funds, three subordinated debt funds, and the Farm Credit Canada Ventures Direct Investment Program. 
Jim has raised and managed over $500 million of growth capital in the ag and food industry. Jim has definitely carved out a reputation as the go-to person for anyone with an ag or food company uh, that has a proven product or business model and is ready to take on outside investment for growth. His approach that you'll hear from his approach that you'll hear all about here in just a minute makes so much sense to me as someone who often finds myself skeptical of a lot of what I see in early stage venture capital. It's it's a totally different approach, but we've never covered something like this on the show. So I'm really excited to drop you into this conversation with Jim Taylor of Forage Capital Partners. There are a number of funds focused on the industry now, uh, but there wasn't always. And it wasn't always, you know, cool and trendy to be an ag. And way back in 2002, I remember starting up and, you know, going to a growth equity and, and venture capital and private equity conferences. And, you know, we'd tell people we were launching a, an ag-focused venture fund and they'd sort of giggle and say, oh, good luck with that. The clean tech guys, when clean tech didn't necessarily go the way everyone hoped it would, they kind of reinvented themselves into ag guys. And so it got a bit crowded for a while. And, you know, that sort of washed through now. And there are some very good, you know, experienced funds in, in the United States in particular. But there's a handful in Canada, too, that are, are pretty good now, uh, you know, 22 years on. And so it's a pretty robust ecosphere. And, and it's good. You know, there's, there's, there's ways to, to bring additional capital to deals. There's a little more competition, which is good for the entrepreneur. And, and there's been a number of successful exits now. You know, companies have grown up and made money over the last 22 years, and and that attracts attention, right? Investors look at that and say, hey, "This is a good place to to make money," and so it brings investment skill and it brings capital, which is which is at the long run is good for the industry, right? Yeah. And, and how would you explain growth equity to someone maybe not in the investment uh, business uh, relative to more earlier stage venture capital or to to private equity? Yeah. So what we tell ourselves it means, it could mean many things to lots of people. What it means to us is, you know, we like businesses that have been around for a little while that have developed products or services or technologies that, that people are paying for. So it's not a beta test. It's not, you know, we, we need to develop a market for a new product or a new concept. It's, you know, we have customers who are using our product, service, or technology, they're paying for it. And now we need to you know, grow that distribution or, or increase usage of the technology or, or build out partnerships that will drive adoption of the technology for the benefit of the industry and, and ultimately create value. And so we're not afraid of companies that are losing money as long as the gross margin part of it is, is healthy. Um, you know, if there's a heavy spend kind of in the admin part of the PL, SGNA part of the PL, to build a business, we're not shy about funding that and driving, you know, top line growth that'll eventually sort of drive the business to break even and ultimately to profitability. What we don't want to do is we're not scientists, we're not, you know, PhDs, we don't have, you know, that kind of background. And so you know, trying to assess, you know, whether a technology or a product or service will work, uh, whether it's effective. We don't want to pay to retrain customers to use what we have. Um, we want to invest in companies that have already done that kind of work. 
And so that's the growth equity, right? We don't mind we don't mind burning cash to grow the. We don't take ex, I guess the best way is we want to take execution risk, not technology risk, because we feel like our backgrounds we're we're good. We've done lots. We've we've been you know some of us have been operators before, and so we're good with execution. And we'll leave the science to the scientists and the developers and that sort of thing. Yeah, and and tell me about the the deal flow within that constraint uh you know both in numbers of deals and types of deals how has it changed over the last uh well i guess since 2006 since you've had forge capital but even you know even further back the last you know 22 years or so yeah so the deal flow has always been relatively strong initially you know it was a pretty uncrowded space and so there was you know lots of deals there's always more early stage deals than growth stage deals. Now I'm not a I'm not an early stage investor. I guess th- those folks would say, well, there's a dearth of really good early stage deals, you know. And and I, I I believe that's true, but we don't play there. So there's lots of emerging ideas and technologies. What what's harder is to to find those businesses where you know somehow they've been able to to muscle it up into existence and to get customers and and have something that's valuable there. But deal flow has been good. You know, there, there's a lot of good businesses. And one of the places where we see it is, you know, there's businesses that have been around for a long time and have gone through a, a, some sort of a generational transfer. So, you know, either the management team has bought it or, uh, you know, partners bought out another partner and the new ownership, you know, wants to take it from, it was maybe it was a $5 million business for, you know, 10 years, 15 years or longer. And the new owner is younger, more dynamic, less intimidated by taking on capital, and really has a vision to grow the business. So those are good, good places for us to invest. We've been involved in a few of those, and we like that. And there's lots of those around. You know, in Canada, a lot of those businesses will come out of some of the you know less traveled places. We've done a number of deals in Winnipeg, in Western Canada, in parts of Saskatchewan, Alberta. Ontario has been a great place for us. There's lots of good small companies. And, and, you know, more recently, there's been a real focus on for small manufacturers back to Canada to shorten up supply chains, really kind of COVID brought that on. Um, and then the geopolitics of the world, uh, you know, it's an unstable place out there. Um, and so, you know, lots of businesses want to have shorter supply chains. And that's created opportunity for you know some of these businesses to really grow their production capacity in North America, or to find partners. If you're a Canadian company, to find a supply chain maybe in the U.S. instead of instead of you know all the way across the ocean, or you know, so that's been good. We've enjoyed that, and that's that's really been a, a real opportunity for us. Yeah, so I I think that's a uh, it's illuminating that in in the stage in which you're investing you're less bound by tech only investments, right? Whereas maybe an early stage venture capitalist, if they're betting on idea, it probably needs to be a pretty proprietary idea, maybe a, you know, an industry shifting idea, but for you, it doesn't necessarily have to be tech driven, does it? No. So we're not, we would, I mean, we don't mind investing in, in established technologies. The limitation that we would put on it, honestly, is, you know, when I was younger, you know, some 20, 25 years ago in this business, people would say, well, you know, you don't want to invest because you don't understand my deal and how great it is. And I think, oh man, maybe I don't understand it. And 20, 20 some years on, you know, 
if I don't understand it, then we're not the right partner, right? You need a partner that understands it. And, you know, we're not shy to say, you know, that, that, that piece of ag tech, you're right. We don't really understand how that, how that works. And so we're the wrong partner. We don't define ourselves as technology either because ag tech has had some good success, but it's had some fantastic wipeouts as well. And part of my observation over time is a lot of people talk, you know, true ag tech, and on some level, it always revolves around the aggregation of data or some sort of data analytic tool or, or something like that. And, and really, the industry, is, as far as I can tell, and again, we're not tech experts, but the world hasn't sorted out whether it's farmers or you know, equipment companies or, or manufacturers. No one's really sorted out how to monetize the usage of that data in agriculture yet. And, and that's why we, don't, we just don't go there because you know, someday somebody's going to figure that out and they'll probably make tons of money. But there's, the risk is very high still there on how you transform data into dollars. Whereas in other you know, industries, they've sorted that out and they're you know, away to the races kind of thing. The other piece for us where we don't worry too much and don't really focus on the, on the hard technology piece is when you start talking you know, science and tech around crop development or seed traits or uh, you know, novel crops and novel proteins and that, there's a lot of regulatory framework that you got to go through before you can introduce a new technology into the human food chain, like new seeds, new varieties, new chemical, brand new input, that sort of thing. Uh, that's that's great. That's the territory of big ag, right? And and there have been some folks who've who've had successful new ventures there and made good money. We don't play there. It's just it's heavy science. It's heavy research. It takes a lot of money and there's a lot of regulatory. And so our view would be, you know, seed stage, early stage investing in that area probably doesn't monetize value in the lifetime of our fund, even if it was, you know, a full on sort of early in the fund life investment. So we don't we don't do that. Not because it's bad. It's just we're not that smart, I guess, is what you could say. So we do do tech. We have done some some great young technology businesses, but you know, after those technologies have been adopted and deployed, we have done you know high efficiency fertilizers, but really they're known. The properties, you know, the backbone of the fertilizer really is known. Whether it's uh, a, a new version on a micronutrient, you know, micronutrients been around a long time. You know, novel ways to get them into the plant. You know, we've done that. New sources of phosphate, we're looking at that. We understand that. We're interested in how do we use less chemical to get more crop and all of that. But we don't want to start playing around with new chemicals and new, just, it's just not us, right? Like we're not, we're not experts there. Yeah, and, you know that, and that's one of the reasons I asked you about, about deal flow, because, you know, I, I asked Corey Wilness to introduce me to you, their story of starting in 08, and becoming strong, profitable, growing, but still room for a lot more growth, uh, and finally taking investment, I think 2021. I can't think of a whole lot of other companies like that. 
but you're often not investing in necessarily technology companies. Yeah, so, so, so that that's a that's a tech. But again, that's a 12 year overnight success for Corey, right? Like he did a lot of work for a long time to to sort through, and and even now, you know, that technology is developing quickly, but you know, there's an established customer base. The retention rates are high. You know, it's pretty clear what it's used for. So, you know, in terms of, I mentioned really monetizing the value of the technology and monetizing the, the information that, that Corey's business generates for the grower has now been well-established, right? And so, you know, the other interesting thing there is from an investment model, Corey's business did it the right way. A lot of companies that are similar to Croptimistic have taken the tack of, we'll give away our service and give away our tech to sign people up and one day we'll charge them. Well, Corey's never done that. Corey's always said, look, you know, there's value in what we're doing. We're not going to give it away ever. We're going to let a small number of people over time adopt the usage and they're going to use it and they're going to see the result and they're going to come back and they're going to, you know, we're going to charge customers a fair price and then service the heck out of the account to make them love us. And so when he got to the place where he needed institutional money, he had long proven how to monetize the value of what he was doing. And he just truly needed capital to accelerate the growth. And it's been a good partnership. It's, the business is doubling every year and Corey's, nailed it right him and Derek you know have a really good window on what growers want and how they value and how they need to use the technology and and so so far so good and and what is the uh, the competitive landscape for investment specifically in growth equity in in that size in food nag i mean are there several other firms out there like forge capital partners that are focused on the same area because i i don't i don't know of any but i'm not in your world either so we would say that we're unique and that we're, you know, better at some things than other folks and and have carved out a place where we exist pretty happily with not a ton of competition. The reality is there are there are some good funds out there. They're in Canada, which is where I'm most familiar. There are more funds that focus on food manufacturing, branded food products. So there's lots of those guys, right? Consumer packaged goods, which touches food. So there's there's lots of those funds around in Toronto and in Canada. And then there, there's a handful of funds who would define themselves as ag tech investors. You know, and they they do sort of that. Um, you know, we really take the tack in the middle and and do a couple of unique things, right? We would say, hey, we do do some you know food manufacturing CPG stuff, but not only in, you know, with COVID and post COVID, that's been a very difficult place. The whole channel for distribution and, you know, input costs and, and the cost of being present in certain places and the retailers in North America has really changed completely. And so that's a tough place to be. So, you know, our business includes everything from equipment manufacturing to inputs uh, fertilizer production, you know, businesses like Corey's that are, you know, effectively some form of, of crop management or input management. But where we really try to differentiate ourselves is we come along and say, look, we're not really interested in having a whole bunch of other funds invest 
with us. We don't try to build a big syndicate. What we really do is go out and say, in forage particularly, we're going to invest and we're going to attract some kind of a individual entrepreneur who brings an expertise that we can use in the business. We call them sort of our our partners, and we want them to write a check and invest in the same instrument with us. So we're looking for people that we've done business with in the past that we know and trust, and we're familiar with their track records, and they know and trust us. And you know, we invest together to work with a company and to build it up. And you know, the, the investee has to a want the money, b you know be able to live with a timeline to a could event. And C, want the mentorship that's going to come from you know, one of our trusted co-investors who's an individual, not an institution. And I think that makes us pretty unique, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's why I find this story just so fascinating. What I'm curious about is, is the investors in your funds, um, what's the conversation like with them if they're not used to investing in this stage as far as you know, risk and expected returns. Yeah. So in the early days, as I mentioned, I, I actually worked for a farm credit for a period of time uh, way back. And so, you know, then sort of 2006, the beginning of the separate fund business, we did have some, some other LPs in Canada. Most of those LPs were government institutions. We did have some smaller family offices, you know, rich individuals who put money in. From the perspective of Farm Credit, who you know has been the largest limited partner in all of the funds, they they definitely want to make money for sure. But you know, of equal importance for them has been the ability to attract other institutional dollars into the investments. And so, you know, sort of lead in a place where it's hard to be a leader. They have also wanted you know, good Canadian businesses and technologies just kind of grow up and gain broader distribution. So they've enjoyed that benefit. I've always been an LP in my own funds. And so my interest is a financial one for sure. My effort is to, you know, create wealth for the uh, partners in the fund, myself included. Um, and so believing in the story that we have and that it it provides an opportunity to to create wealth, both for the entrepreneur that we back you know, and that's been an interesting piece is you know, we forget, but in an industry where there hasn't been a lot of venture capital going back to 2002, and now there's you know been others and us, and we've invested lots along the way, you start to build a network of successful entrepreneurs who reinvest their winnings into the sector that they're familiar with. <clears throat> and it really begins to proliferate and to grow. And that's probably the thing at Forge we're most proud of is that you know, there is now a network after, you know, 20 some years of people who've made money and created wealth for themselves and their families and have reinvested that back into the communities where they live and the provinces and places uh, where they believe they want to do good there, but they also want to continue to grow, you know, their capital by investing in something they can, they know and understand. So that's been, a, that's been a great experience for us. RLPs, you know, again, have largely been government institutions, so business development bank, farm credit, EDC. You know they've been they've been great to deal with over the years. You know in the current fund, the Forge's first fund here, 
Farm Credit is the largest investor. I am the next largest investor together. And so we really started this program during COVID in May of 2020, when a lot of investors were kind of running for the hills, you know, in the darkest moments there in the middle of the lockdown. And we had a lot of companies that couldn't get capital because investors just kind of closed the doors. You know, they suffered sort of catastrophic changes to their business as a result of either, you know, supply chains getting shut down or sales forces that just simply weren't allowed to leave their offices and couldn't sell their products. And so the opportunity to to step into that and invest, you know, aggressively from 2020 to 2022, there's a lot of good businesses there and a lot of really good companies that had had a lot of success for even a decade before that. And as soon as things got shaky, banks got nervous and customers got nervous. And what they really needed was some capital that would step in and be patient and take the view that the world wasn't ending, that there was, we were going to get through it. It wasn't going to be easy. And so you know, we did that and we made you know, 11 investments. And fortunately, you know, some, some didn't survive and they won't. Um, but the vast, you know, the majority of those companies are are strong today and getting stronger and stronger very quickly, and it'll probably be one of the most successful funds that uh, that I've had. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, and that's one very interesting thing about your approach versus like an early stage venture capital is they might be expecting the majority. They are expecting the majority of their companies not to make it, whereas I, I wouldn't think in your case you are. No, 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 no. We expect most of them to make it. And you know, ultimately, the unique place where we are too is a lot of times, you know, our businesses get big enough, and and then the successful ones have continued to grow, and frankly, have a a demand for more capital to continue to grow, really beyond what Forage can can give them. And so, our exit is often to a larger, you know, private equity firm that that wants to invest, you know, thirty or forty million dollars in a business. And so, you know, we'll see the exit to a larger private equity firm that, you know, has a, has a plan to, you know, double or triple it beyond where we can take it. And, and I'm sure this is part of the secret sauce here, but to the extent you want to divulge, how do you find these opportunities or, or do they find you? Well, a little bit of both. Uh, at this point, I've been around a long time. And so some of them find us just because you know, I've been doing this for so long that Many, many ag businesses in Canada would find us. Uh, but the way we really find them, honestly, is a little different. You know, being willing to, to go to Swift Current, Saskatchewan, being willing to go to Nakem, Saskatchewan, being willing to go to rural Manitoba and, and look around and meet the people. You know, a lot of funds don't want to do that. A lot of, a lot of Toronto-based funds just aren't keen on doing that. So that's sort of one way. And then the other way is just to continue to network within the industry is a great way to to do that. And again, our approach has been to be present, you know, where these companies operate. For example, you know, in our current fund, Farm Credit is an LP in, in, in more than just our fund. They're an LP in several funds and they're a big institution. And our fund is a little unique in the sense that all but I think two of the deals we've done, the other funds that they are involved with never even heard of them. Our companies didn't even show up on their radar screen. And so 
it's sort of back to that growth equity thesis. We're not ag tech. We're not consumer packaged goods. We like technologies that are kind of cool that we can understand. Um, but we also just like plain old good businesses that need capital to grow. And, you know, really they're about superior execution, uh, not so much being the only mousetrap of its kind. That makes perfect sense. Uh, well, well, you mentioned that, you know, they haven't all been easy successes, right? So what, what have been some of the harder lessons that you've learned along the way? Well, sometimes if you're the first guy or girl to do something, it doesn't always work. And so, you know, we did have an investment in an insect farm, which was great. It was one of those things that looked great on paper. We had customers. You know, it turns out the businesses didn't scale the way we hoped. It was tough to operate during COVID for sure. But I would say that was a complication, not an excuse that we could use. It made it harder, but it didn't make it impossible. And so, you know, something like that where in spite of, you know, the thing that we would say we kind of have a pretty good handle on on protein markets and, and stuff, we just got it wrong. The the animal pet food regulatory framework just wasn't ready for for insect feed. It took longer and cost more to get through the regulatory hurdle. And then sort of a recurring theme in that one and others that we've struggled with, it's very difficult to build a plant, like physical plant, for a new process. And we've typically steered away from that, right? So you know, when you're building a production facility to do something that's novel, it's really hard to know how long and how much it's going to cost to commission it. Because no one's there's no book, no one's done it before, and so you know the biggest lesson that we've learned across a handful of investments is don't embark on a capital expansion like a building a production facility unless you've got way more money than you need <laughs> because it costs twice as much and takes twice as long as even the smartest person will tell you at least that's been our experience, so that was a rough one. The other thing I think that's tough where we've had some headwinds, you know, we often look at a business and think, okay, you know, the Canadian market is so big and then we need to gain access south of the border in the United States. And just the cost of doing business and the competitiveness in all sectors, you know, in the United States is just orders of magnitude higher. And so it's difficult to cross the border. When we haven't done enough work or understood the competitive dynamics south of the border and have tried to expand too quickly south, you know, those, those deals have been tough, right? That often, you know, they've, they've survived and we've been able to get out, but really we never achieved what we set out to do. So that, that can be tough. U.S. expansion without a good partner down there or a really good understanding of what you're up against is often a fool's game for small businesses in Canada. That's really interesting. Do, do these companies always have a board of directors in place that once you become an investor, you, you join that board? Is that typically no, how it works? We almost never do. We, we, would, we would construct the, the board. Sometimes we try to keep that small initially to the founder, us, and then an independent. You know, as the business grows, you know, our... Our view on the board, though, maybe, I don't know if it's different than other funds, but we really view it as an opportunity for the company to go out and engage with the best person, frankly, 
in the world that they can find that knows about what they're doing. You know, we don't see it as a a requirement or an ego boosting exercise to be on the board. And frankly, our view, why we don't want a lot of institutional partners, one of the hard lessons I've learned over the years of doing this, you know, you get a small company and you get four investors on the board, it usually just gets screwed up. They're not all committed at the same level to having an understanding of the business. Uh, Really, what a board of directors needs to do is guide the business, not guide your fund. And so you get too many on there and they all have their own selfish interest, which really has nothing to do with building the business. My colleagues might disagree and take offense to that, but I've watched it play out too many times. And so, you know, we would take a seat on that board. One of the management team's members would be on that board or maybe two if there's a founder. And the other is we'd want to go out to the outside world and find find people connected to places we want to go, find people with skill sets and experience that the company needs and build it out that way. That's pretty cool. Um, I appreciate you sharing all this. I, I'm curious about uh, right now as we sit early in 2024, do you uh, look for opportunities within a thesis or or really you just it sounds like you're just really looking for good companies and and kind of how do you keep up to date with changes to the industry that might be happening? Well, the the second question is an easy one. How do we keep up to date? We're engaged pretty deeply with our investment portfolio. And so, you know, we're kind of constantly searching for new information about similar products, similar ideas, similar technologies, even similar companies or new competitors that may be emerging. We do spend time, we we spend a lot of time meeting the customers that our companies have. And so you know, what do they want? What do they need? What problems do they have? What problems are they trying to solve? And so we gather a lot of knowledge that way, which I really like doing. That, that's the fun part of the job is as being involved with the businesses and kind of learning what, what's coming down the pipe. And then your, your first part of that question though, you know, what are we doing in 2024? Unlike other funds, the reality of Forage is we're fully invested now we have two sort of businesses that we've been had in due diligence for some time. We will likely do at least one of those investments, but we're not actively looking for any more new investments. And I'm not young, I'm getting old. So this probably is the end of the line for, for Forage, at least under my, my leadership. So uh, there will not likely be another Forage fund, but there's lots of cool opportunities out there and there's lots of, you know, young minds and smart people to take advantage of the opportunities, both as investors and entrepreneurs. And, and uh, it's an exciting time in ag. I think I really believe the opportunities that are going to show up are, are really around, you know, how do we deal with some of the, the environmental constraints around agriculture that are real? We don't need craziness. We need real practical advances in whether it's applications or usage or whatever that that can find ways to use less chemical on the ground and get a better result. I do think there needs to be more attention paid to variable rate. And I think that's a huge growth opportunity somewhere, somehow. And I think there's a huge opportunity on the production side, both on the equipment and food production and fertilizer production to bring a lot of that stuff back to North America. Uh, there's a reshoring opportunity, I think. And I think that 
know, our manufacturing business that we own that's grown so quickly, you know, one of the largest benefits to us has been, you know, when supply chains went wonky, you know, we went out and and the initial play was we went long, long inventory on some stuff that we knew other people were going to have a hard time getting and we were the only guys that had it. And from there, we you know really kind of became sort of the sole source provider to a whole new set of companies that could count on us to deliver, you know, when maybe they were shutting down production lines because the supply chain involved, you know, either an uncertain shipping line or, you know, an unstable country or whatever, right? And we see that in food and we sure see it in equipment. A lot of the big ag equipment guys, they want certainty of supply. They want shorter supply chains. Um, and we're taking advantage of that. And I think there's way more of that to be done. I think that, you know, an astute new fund would look at that and say, hey, how do we how do we take advantage of that? All right. Well, that is going to round out today's episode with Jim Taylor. Thank you so much to Jim for being on the show. If you'd like to learn more about what they're doing over there at Forge Capital Partners, you can do so on their website. It's just forgecapitalpartners.com. And of course, we'll link it in the show notes as well. Another big thank you to Swap Maps for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter and to Corey Wilness at Swap Maps for introducing me to Jim. And last but certainly never least, thank you for your time and your attention. I do not take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.